Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Good morning, everybody. How many of us here are uh, landowners? Like you own your property, you bought a, a house, you bought a condo, you're a landowner. Show of hands. Yeah, yeah. Heather and I became landowners about 16 years ago. We'd been living in an overpriced one-bedroom apartment. Uh, we we were pretty sure we'd be in Hamilton for the foreseeable future. So we hired a realtor who took us through like, it took us more than 30 houses to find the one. And then we finally found uh, our place. We fell in love with it, but it was way overpriced. The price tag was 169000 And Obviously, like at 16 years later, that's a ridiculously low amount of money. But at the time, we were like, seriously? How would we ever afford that? We made them an offer we thought they would never accept. And you should have been there. You should have heard as we, as we weighed the decision. As we weighed the decision out, we were like, man, do we even realize how much money that is? Like, do you realize what the mortgage is going to be? Do you realize what the pro- the property tax is going to be on that much money? Do you do you realize like how far it is from the church? At the time, we were part of a church that that meets at the north end of Hamilton, which is like a, a seven minute drive away, actually walkable. Um, we as we weighed the decision, we even asked like, do you even realize we are not going to be able to do anything fun again? We're not going to be able to do vacations get a vehicle, do do anything fun ever again. And we understood at the time that there's a lot of risks that you take on. There's a lot of costs involved in a deal or in a, in a purchase or, or, or a deal this big. And that's true of, of any, you know, large deal. Obviously, we're talking about a house, but it's also true of an education or a, a vehicle that you might buy or take a trip that you might take. Uh, and in ancient times, it's also true of land or a bride. And that's where we find ourselves today in the book of Ruth. Now, since the start of the season of Lent, we've been studying this the book of Ruth. We've been focusing on the suffering of Naomi and Ruth. And we've seen that what God did in their lives, what God, the ways that God redeemed their suffering, he also wants to do that for us. He wants to redeem ours as well, if we'll allow it. And I want to say, I've enjoyed this study more than I thought I would. I've learned more than I thought I would. But most of all, I think I've noticed Jesus more than I thought I would. I've noticed him more than I thought I would, especially here in chapter 4. Now, when we were together last week, David Hausenjan did a great job explaining the scene in chapter 3, where you've got this um, this nighttime rendezvous, kind of scandalous, kind of risque, uh, that happens on the threshing room floor. And there, we saw that Ruth proposed, that Boaz proposed to her. And he does, he's all in, and they're going to get married now. And and, and last we saw, the end of chapter 3, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, her, she's at a place where she just hopes that Boaz is a man who's going to keep his promise. And, and, and that's fair for her to hope that, because as we've seen, as we've gone along, Naomi has been hurt before. 
You know, things have not worked out for Naomi. So she hopes today it's going to work out. Now, today, no time has passed. We join Boaz the morning after the threshing room floor meeting. And he's preparing for to do some business at the gate. Now, if he's if he's successful, a couple of things happen. If he does it, if he does this right, if it works, one Naomi never goes hungry again, because she's going to have all of her husband's land back. And second, if he's successful, then Ruth and Boaz get married, and there's a chance for them to have children and a long, happy life together. But there's a few reasons why things might not work out for them. Like there's there's actually some, some the odds are kind of stacked against them in some ways. Because first, uh, Boaz has to redeem the land and he has to marry Ruth for this to work. Like we're going to see why it has, it actually has to be both. They can't just, he can't have one or the other. Like Boaz, it, it needs to have both of those uh, outcomes. Second, it's actually not totally up to Boaz. There's actually someone closer. There's another redeemer who is actually first in line. And unless Boaz can persuade this guy not to go through with the deal, then that guy is almost certainly going to make the deal and redeem the land. Well, third reason uh, why, you know, there's why there's so much suspense in this scene is that You've got this, the, this business deal is going to happen outside the gate. This is a part of an old tradition, an old custom practiced in ancient Israel, that when the elders would meet at the city gate to do business, they would make decisions, and that decision was final. Like, there's no take backs. Like, they, they, they meet outside the city, outside the gate, where people are coming and going, and it's, it's, really, uh, it, it's really likely that you'll have lots of, you know, witnesses, um, and so the, the elders would meet there. Maybe they'd be there to judge a dispute between some neighbors who are in conflict together. Maybe they're there to, to bear witness to a land deal and make sure that it's, it's lawful and make sure that it conforms to God's law. Today, they're going to make a decision and, and sort of judge this land deal, that, which is really deciding on the fate of Naomi and Ruth, and they're not there. Like, this is a huge decision that affects the fate of Naomi and Ruth, and they can't participate. And this decision is going to be binding. It's final. So there's a lot of suspense here. This thing, it might not go the way that we hope it does. In fact, I see a a number of possible outcomes here, not just the one that we want. There's actually four ways that this plays out, okay? And, uh, And I think it's going to be helpful if we consider each one of these uh, because it t- it actually tells the story, so we're we'll, we're going to look at what those four ways are as we as we uh, consider the story here. Now, in some ways, uh, just getting started here, the f- the first option, the first way the story plays out, might be the most obvious, might be the most relatable for people in our culture, because the first outcome, the first possible outcome of this deal would be that uh, Ru- Ruth is redeemed, but the land is not. Okay, so option one is redeem Ruth, do not redeem the land. Now, because people matter more than land, that might be the choice we make. We might say, have compassion on Ruth. Marry Ruth out of compassion. Forget the land, because people matter more than, than land. And, and just to be clear, that's true. People matter. People matter more than things. That's always been true. God feels that way too. 
And in our culture today, in 2022, you can score a lot of virtue points if people believe that you believe that. But just to be clear, like we are worlds away from the culture of Ruth and Boaz. Our values have shifted quite a bit, actually, from the values of the culture of Ruth and Boaz. Now, this is something I, I realized a few years back um, during the disputes uh, over land in Caledonia. I, I'm not sure if you are familiar with the story, but uh, natives from the Six Nations had uh, stopped the construction of some townhomes on disputed Six Nations land. So the, there was, now you can agree or disagree with the protests themselves and the validity of the, of the debate on either side or the validity of the, of, the, of the arguments. But I think that indigenous people actually really get how Israel felt about land. And, and I saw this because on the news, I'd tune in and I'd see, I'd see these white residents of the town who'd visit the protest site and it looked like they were there to, to pick a fight and kind of provoke it. And, and get it on video and, and make the, the protesters look bad. And, and what was fascinating to me is that just as these, these guys stepped onto the land, onto the, the disputed land, you'd, you could see visibly, almost bodily, you could see the effect of it on the native protesters. It felt like, it looked like it, it, was, it was an attack. It was perceived as violence just for them to step foot on the land it looked like a reenactment of colonization and so i can totally appreciate today why land claims and land disputes are complicated because on on the one hand you've got people like most of us for whom land is mainly an investment it's it's mainly a financial question. On the other side, you've got people who relate to the land as though it is a gift from their creator. They relate to the land almost like it is a family member who needs protection. And in the same way, in Ruth's culture, all right, in the culture of Ruth and Boaz in their day, if you're part of ancient Israel, you are tied to the land that God gave you because that land is the, is the expression, it's the tangible expression of God's care for his people. And so if we make this choice, if we redeem Ruth, but we lose the land, that's not a win. Like great for Ruth and Boaz, if they get married, maybe they have a nice romantic marriage for a lot, a lot of years. But when they're gone, assuming they have kids, those kids are going to grow up and they're going to become poor and hungry and Boaz's family name is going to be forgotten because we failed to protect the land. And that was our responsibility. And I think that there's a lesson in here for us. Sometimes what is going to seem like the simple choice, the obvious choice, isn't the way of Jesus. I, I, I'm a big fan of compassion. Compassion is great and compassion is Christ-like. But compassion without responsibility Compassion without responsibility is, it's actually not helpful. It's not ultimately helpful. And that's not the outcome we want here. And so to redeem Ruth, but let the land be lost, that's actually not an option here for us. And so that's the first way this might play out. The second way that this, this meeting, this deal might play out is if they agree to redeem neither the land nor Ruth. So that's the other way this might, that's another way this might go. Suppose Boaz says, I'm going to redeem neither the land nor will I redeem Ruth. 
And you know, if you were a pretty conservative, careful, law-abiding person, you know, this might be the choice you make. And it would be easy to defend it biblically. And nobody in your faith community would actually criticize you for that because, because technically and because legally and, and even biblically, redeeming land and redeeming property is, it's your right, but it is not your duty. Like you are not required to redeem. You hear that? Now, in this case, where Naomi's husband, uh, Elimelech, before he died, he had made such a mess of things. He moves the family out of their ancestral homeland of, of Bethlehem. He puts, has them put down roots in Moab. His sons marry Moabite women. He's just made a, just, just such a disaster. Such, so many disastrous choices. And, uh, and so you might say, you know, you might look at Naomi and the situation she's in. You might say like, well, hey, sorry, Naomi. I'm sorry, but that, that's what you get. Like, what did you think was going to happen when you came back? Of course you're in a hard situation. You want relief? You want some kind of escape from this? Well, there is actually a provision in the law. So why don't you wait for the year of Jubilee and the land will go back to Elimelech's family. And that's when you can be restored. But as for me, I'm, I'm going to pass. I'm not going to redeem the land or Ruth in this case. Sorry about that. And the thing is, maybe the land can wait 75 years for the year of Jubilee, but Ruth can't. And that's the problem with this uh, approach or this point of view. This, that's the, the problem with legalism. Like legalism comes easily when it's not your family and when it's not your suffering. Isn't that true? But again, there's a lesson in here for us. And, and I would want to say to this person, look, I, I get it. This isn't your fault. It's not your responsibility. It's not, it's not your problem. If you don't redeem, it's not necessarily a sin. Like that's, it's not necessarily that it's wrong. It's just that it's so right to do what you can. And I think in the same way, if we, uh, as followers of Jesus, as, if we as the church, if we allow our rules and our customs and our traditions to exclude people and to ignore people, and to, to dodge responsibility, that's, that's not okay. And it's not so much that it's unrighteous as it is self-righteous. And that's not who we are. That's not who we're supposed to be. And that won't be helpful for Ruth and Boaz. And so uh, I actually I came across this quote I think is really helpful. I totally agree with this teacher, Andrina Sawyer, who says, Legalism has killed more faith than doubt ever has. Legalism has killed more faith than doubt ever has. Well, there's a third way that this meeting might play out. Uh, the, the final decision might be redeem the land, but not Ruth. So we've seen what happens if we redeem Ruth, but not the land. We've seen what happens if we redeem neither the land nor Ruth. In this scenario, we might redeem the land, but not redeem Ruth. And this is where we enter the story again. So in verse 1, we're introduced to this guy who's called a, a guardian redeemer. And, and he's a closer relative to Naomi than Boaz is. So, so like if Boaz is Naomi's second cousin, this guy is maybe her first cousin. Okay? And notice, he's not even named. 
Like in verse 1, Boaz refers to him, in the NIV at least, as my friend. And we might call him like so-and-so, or dude, or guy. Like, you know when you run into somebody and you don't quite remember their name, and so you go like, hey, man, how's it going? Like, hey, how you been, dude? So I'm going to do something like that. I'm going to call him for the purposes of our study today. I'm going to call this guy Chad. All right, this this nearer redeemer, his name is Chad for our purposes today. So Boaz finds Chad at the gate. He asks him to have a seat and they start to talk business. And Boaz asks him if he wants to redeem Naomi's property. And that's an easy yes for Chad. He's all in. But then in verse 5, we saw that Boaz alters the deal. And what Boaz says in verse 5 is, Like on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Like that's the new deal. Like, Chad, you can have the land if you also agree to marry Ruth. And it's not hard to imagine how Chad weighed out that that decision, how he weighed it out. He's, He's like, oh. Hmm, she is a Moabite. Hmm, like, do you realize what people are going to call you and your your kids? Hmm. Do you you realize that if you have kids with Ruth, the land is going to go to them and not to you? Hmm. Like, do you realize, Chad, that if she outlives you, your land may go to her? Like even your land will go to her. So that even, it's it's the name of Elimelech and not Chad that becomes a great name in Judah. Do you realize that? Are you sure that that's what you want? Hmm. In fact, in, in verse 6, we get Chad's answer. Because it says, at, at this the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And so we see that for, for Chad, it's all math. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all, it's profit and loss. And and when it was just a land deal, Chad was all in. But once he understands the costs and the risks and the personal and like relational implications, he is out. And that's the kind of redeemer that Chad is, okay? That's the kind of redeemer that Chad is. It's interesting. He cares so much about preserving his own name. I think this is maybe kind of ironic. He wants to preserve his own name, and yet his name isn't even mentioned. Is that ironic? Okay, we don't want to be like Chad. That's not the outcome uh, that we want for this story. But um, but by, by contrast, actually, Boaz is going to show us what is the fourth option. This is sort of like the best case scenario. This is our desired outcome, okay? Because the fourth option is we redeem both the land and Ruth. We redeem both the land and Ruth. And and we hope that that'll play out. We hope so. In fact, if you've been following, you might have noticed some details that co- make it kind of complicated. Some some details that don't maybe maybe don't quite make sense. Like we've seen that Boaz makes this a package deal. Like it's got to be the land and Ruth. It's got to be, it's all or nothing. And and now, but technically, the law doesn't require that. Like, is maybe Boaz is just making that up. Surely the elders know that you don't have to get a bride and land in the same transaction. Why do the elders let it happen this way? 
That's kind of interesting, right? It's also interesting that, you know, technically it's not Naomi who is selling the land. Now, God owns the land. You can, you can rent it out, but you can't sell it. Okay, because the, the land belongs to God. When, when, when Naomi and Elimelech took their family to Moab, when they left Bethlehem, we can assume that they leased out their land. You know, somebody else took it over and was farming it and had to lease uh, to the land. Now that she's back, Naomi needs the land, except she has no money. And she can't just cancel the guy's lease. She has to buy him out. Well, enter Boaz. Because Boaz... Can, can buy out the guy's lease, right? He can buy out that tenant. He can give the money to Naomi, but it's not technically a sale. Like according to the law, at least, it's not, a, it's not actually a sale. And, and again, surely Boaz knows this. Surely the elders know this. Why do they let it go on the way that they do? Well, a third interesting kind of detail here is that, like we've talked about leveret marriage before in, in this book a couple of times, I think. Like, a lever at marriage, that's where Johnny dies and his widow marries his brother Steve. And if she, if she has children with Steve, then those children are raised as though they are Johnny's kids, not Steve's kids. That's what a lever at marriage is. And and technically, uh, even though we, we it looks like we're treating the marriage of Ruth and Boaz as a lever at marriage, technically Boaz isn't related to Ruth. He's related to Naomi. The rules about leveret marriage don't apply. And, and if they want to get married, they totally can. There's nothing stopping them. And again, Boaz knows this. Surely the elders know this. If they're paying attention, really they ought to speak up, right? Like, what's going on here? How do we explain this? Are these, are these bad elders? Are they, are they unaware of the, the law? Uh, maybe Boaz has, has tricked them. Well, this is like actually a problem. This is something that has perplexed Bible scholars and commentators about the book of Ruth for, for a long, long time. And recently, scholars have offered another explanation. It seems that Boaz, and, and I just think that this is really helpful for helping us understand the kind of redeemer that Boaz is. Here's what Boaz did, okay? It seems Boaz has done a deep dive into Israelite history, and he came across a case, like a story, with similar circumstances that God actually approved of. And so, if in fact, if you want to look that up, it's in uh, the book of Numbers, chapters 27, and it's also mentioned again in chapter 36. It's the story of a, a man named Zelophehad and his daughters. And some of the language there, where his daughters had no husbands, and they inherit, they're allowed to inherit the land and, and, and choose their husbands and stuff, um, some of the language there and some of the circumstances there in the case of Zelophehad and his daughters, uh, some of that stuff is, is identical. And what that means is there is a legal precedent for the kind of deal that Boaz wants to make. You know, sometimes in law, in, in legal cases, we talk about a precedent. Uh, well, that's what Boaz has done here. He's found a precedent and he's going to use it to his advantage. That's the kind of redeemer Boaz is. He is determined. He is resourceful and focused and creative. He's super knowledgeable. 
and he's generous and kind and, and loving. That's the kind of redeemer that Boaz is. He is nothing like Chad, even though they faced the same decision. They faced the same pros and cons, didn't they? Like, it's, it's not hard to imagine how Boaz weighed the decision. When he weighed the decision, he had to ask himself, like, you, you do realize she's a Moabite. Don't you care what people will say about you and about your kids? Yeah, not, not really. Don't you realize that if you have children with Ruth, that land is going to go to them and not to you? Yes, I understand. Boaz, don't you realize that if she outlives you, even the land you have now may go to her so that it's the name of Elimelech, not Boaz, that becomes a great name in Judah. Are you sure that this is what you want? And of course, as he weighs it out, he's like, yes, I understand. I, I accept the costs. I, I accept the risks. I love Ruth. I'm marrying Ruth. And that's the kind of redeemer that Boaz is. And so that's how the scene kind of ends. Like, that's Boaz persuades Chad that he doesn't want to make this deal. Chad says, fine, basically, buy it yourself in verse 8. And, you know, the music swells to a crescendo. And Chad's sandal goes flying through the air. And there's a big cloud of dust as it lands in the sand right in front of the feet of Boaz. And Boaz turns to the elders in the crowd and they go wild. And Boaz quiets them down and he's like, y'all are witnesses. It's done. I've bought the land back for Naomi. I've acquired Ruth as my wife. You are witnesses of this. And and again, the crowd just goes nuts. And they offer, in verses 11 and 12, they offer their blessings and they offer their prayers. And they say, we are witnesses. May God bless Ruth. May God bless your name, Boaz. May God bless your family. You did it. It's done. In fact, I, I, I think it's kind of interesting. Boaz turns out to be a better redeemer than the only redeemer these people have ever known. Right? He turns out to be a better redeemer than the redeemer that they know. The, this story, the way it's written, it, it begs us to compare Chad with Boaz in order to see how uh, Boaz is better. Like, Boaz is what a good redeemer looks like. Boaz is the guy you want to do your redeeming, you know? In fact, Boaz shows us the sort of redeemer that God is. Because Boaz, he accepted the risks, he, ex- he accepts the costs. He even does some fancy legal work in order to, to, to acquire Ruth, and he got the land thrown in. But in in the same way, God has gone to far greater lengths to redeem us. You know, far greater costs, far greater risks. And he did it to redeem us. And we get the world thrown in. In fact, when when I think about what happened at the gate and that conversation, that decision, that those deliberations, it reminds me of another discussion, of another deliberation that happened a long, long time ago. But not among any elders, but among the persons of the Trinity. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption. It's the idea that before anything existed, before us, before creation, before time, before there was anything, there was God. 
And God had a conversation among the people, the persons of the Godhead, in and and and, and they knew that in order for their story to unfold as it should, if they move forward with this plan of creation and redemption, they knew that for God to be all in all, humanity would need a redeemer. And I, I can only imagine how they weighed the decision. I can just imagine how the Father and the Spirit embrace the Son. And as they weigh out the decision, they're like, Son, you, you do realize the religious leaders will never accept us. We'll be, re- we'll be rejected by our own people. You understand this? Yes, I understand. And they will lie and they will make up phony charges against you. Yes, I understand. Son, they will arrest you in front of your followers. They will haul you before Herod and Pilate. These these personifications of what we hate the most, religious hypocrisy and and military oppression, and you're going to have to submit to them. You understand that? Yes, I understand. And son, they will spit on you, and they will laugh at you, and all our friends will abandon you, and you'll be beaten and stripped naked, and you'll be whipped and crowned with thorns and they're going to drive spikes through your hands and feet and the judgment that they deserve will be on you as a substitute they're going to raise you up on a cross and you're going to die a horrible death you're the creator and you'll be killed by your creation do you understand that this is what we're talking about yes i understand and son Even after they believe, they're going to need us every day. Minute by minute, they're going to need you as their shepherd. Sometimes the church will lose its way. Sometimes the church will misrepresent us. And sometimes people will blame you for it. You understand this? The son's answer was, I understand and I accept the cost. I will redeem them. I will redeem them, said the son. And that's the kind of redeemer we have in Jesus. That's the kind of redeemer we have in Jesus. And so let me ask, as we begin to close here, if that's true, if that's the kind of redeemer we have in Jesus, what problem or burden or hurt do we think that we can bring to him that he can't handle? If, if he's our redeemer, if that's the kind of redeemer that he is, what kind, what suffering and what sorts of doubt that we can come to him with that are going to shock him or that are going to like scare him away as though he's some kind of a chad. If, if this is the kind of redeemer that we have in Jesus, who's he going to turn away? Who would he ever turn away as though we have some sin or some flaw or some piece of brokenness that he has never seen a million times before? No way. No way. He can take it. He can take us. He, he welcomes us. And, and I just want you to let that land on you. Let that comfort you. We can bring him all these things because Jesus is the best of all the good redeemers in the whole universe. He is the best good redeemer. There are good redeemers and Jesus is the best of all of them. Jesus, Jesus is better at redeeming the broken parts of our lives than we are at breaking them. 
All right, let me say that again. Jesus is better at redeeming the broken points of our lives than we are at breaking them. Jesus is better at redeeming than we are at sinning. That's the kind of redeemer that he is. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.